if you accept that there's the, a climate change and we're getting extreme weather and we're, perhaps we're going to get more heat waves, you know, how do you adapt to that? If you accept it, how do you adapt? How does society adapt to dealing with this? Look, it's already been a really memorable summer. We've had 30 degree or higher temperatures, almost more like the norm this summer than the exception. Uh, that extreme heat wave a couple of weeks ago, we were in the high 30s, so really record-breaking levels. Now, climate experts say it is not surprising that it is a harbinger of things to come due to climate change. So, as I say, if you accept that, and, and the majority of people do, I know not all, but the majority, but what do you do about it? How do you adapt to a world where there may be more heat waves or other kinds of extreme weather? We're going to have a chat with Ian Morrow, who is executive director of the Prairie Climate Center out of the University of Winnipeg, joining us here this morning on 630. Ched, uh, Ian Morrow, nice to talk to you. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, I'm doing not too bad. Thanks. That's good. You know, we often hear, uh, you know, these kind of temperatures are not unprecedented. Uh, there are records from the 30s where it was that hot, and, and there certainly wasn't concern about climate change then. So why is this heat wave uh, different, and why why is it sort of raising eyebrows uh, in a different manner? Yeah, well, it's something that I, I think is interesting and in that, you know, we've talked about climate change being this thing out there at a distant kind of geography in someone else's backyard that's going to happen in the future. And what's happened this summer is that, bang, you know, climate change is right in our faces. It's happening in real time. And I think people are starting to truly realize, you know, the, the science and what we've been talking about for decades is very real and very serious. And when you think about Lighten BC, you know, where they hit the absolute all-time Canadian temperature record at just below 50 degrees Celsius. You know, let that sink in for a second. 50 degrees Celsius. You know, the news media around the world was looking at this and the community burned down the next day because of the extreme dryness, because of the potential for forest fires. And I, my heart goes out to the community, but, you know, in Edmonton there, you know, in, in Alberta, you think about the wildfires, the beast in Fort McMurray, and you think about the potential implications of this extreme heat leading to forest fires, leading to evacuations, leading to smoke and evacuations and public health emergencies. You know, this is this is what climate change looks like, and these are the things that we need to prepare for. And the hard part, though, to wrap a head around is the fact that we have been told previously that you don't take uh, moments in time and say that that is is indicative of a larger issue so just like if you have you know a, a particularly cold winter uh the people go well uh, so much for global warming so you know how, how do we look at this one year and say yes this is directly attributable to climate change you know, that's a great question, and the scientific community has been trying to figure that out, that conundrum, right, weather versus climate. And there's a group and there's a whole branch of science looking at attribution science. So can you immediately pinpoint the cause on climate change and, and actually rapid attribution science? And so uh, there was heat waves in Europe a number of years ago, a group of scientists formed, and with this last heat wave, they actually did the initial kind of rapid attribution science, and they have indicated that this is a one in 1,000 year heat wave that occurred and that it was 150 times more likely because of anthropogenic greenhouse gases and human-caused climate change. And what they said in this study that is coming out is that if we do not rein in our emissions by about 2040, 
these one in 1,000 here heat waves could happen every five to 10 years. And so this attribution science is starting to occur. And part of it is to contend with kind of climate denial and to contend with this kind of issue that you just stated, you know, how can we, you know, prove, prove cause and effect. And, and in fact, the science is getting to the point because these events are happening so much that we actually have better data to be able to pinpoint this, say it's caused by climate change, it's more likely at this kind of certain percentage. And so we're increasingly certain that these are, these are climate driven events. Uh, let, let's assume that, that that's that's the case and it's going to take a while to turn this boat around so we would have to learn to live with it and the effects of it how do you plan for extremes well at the prairie climate center at the university of winnipeg we developed a tool called the climate atlas of canada and if you go to your browser right now climateatlas.ca you'll get to a landing page you'll be able to read about climate change we're actually video makers and filmmakers and so you can watch and understand different people's perspectives across the landscape but the background of this website is an atlas and i'm in the department of geography we're interested in maps if you imagine a map of canada with grid paper on it there's clickable features you can go literally anywhere in the country to look at the best available climate model data to find out what we anticipate each different geography of the country may may experience under these different climate scenarios and so you can look at kind of mid-century 2021 to 2050 2051 to 2080 there's sliders you can click around and so the first kind of process in trying to understand how do we adapt we have to understand what the potential risks are and the trends you know in the data and so again this tool is a risk assessment tool essentially you can start to understand you know what we might experience on the canadian prairies we're in interior continental climate you know we're in winnipeg right now i am here in edmonton but we're kind of bundled together in a, in a similar geography and we know it's going to warm up here quite extensively and so when you think about this extreme heat when you think about planning for the future a lot of communities are doing these kinds of risk assessments and they're saying we need street tree programs we need to ensure that we have shaded areas you know we need to think about you know green roofs and the idea that we're cooling down our urban centers because one of the confounding and and kind of contributing factors is that our urban centers actually warm up more the the concrete absorbs that heat you know people start putting on their air conditioners it's blowing hot air back into the city and our cities actually have this urban heat island effect so they're they're even hotter so we need to figure out how to green them people are talking about blue and green infrastructures you know thinking about splash pads in in, in specific parts of the downtown so people in high rises can get out of their hot apartments and down to a water intervention there's all these things that we need to start thinking about and planning for and there's a real opportunity to kind of address these issues so that we can have a safe and livable future well and 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 it's stuff that costs money and so that is going to be uh, tough to get some people to wrap their head or their head around based on predictions uh, whether they they believe you or not yeah well you know the the, the real trick here is that uh, a group that i work with the canadian institute of climate choices they just put out a report on the cost of extreme heat and, and climate change and it is literally in the billions of dollars if you think about productivity losses people not being able to do their jobs simply because it's so hot if you think about you know the the mortality people died hundreds of people have died in british columbia because of the heat wave especially seniors isolated in their homes there are real costs to 
not adapting and not preparing. And so when you look at the ledger, the balance sheet, it actually pays off massively to prepare now for that future. And so that's the kind of you know calculus we need to do in society to make sure that we're making good choices with the investments that we have. Uh, from from government, what kind of sort of reaction do you get from uh, from some of the things you talk about? And I guess it depends on on which government is in power in which jurisdiction. But uh, have you been having those conversations as you look toward public policy? Yeah, I work with government all the time, and, and uh, you know, you'd be surprised how much interest there is in the uptake of these ideas, given the severity of the issues and given the cost that we actually see, as I just mentioned. You know, the fact that, you know, you think about the beast in, in Fort McMurray, this, how much money was spent there, and the insurance industry, in fact, is tracking these things, and with the fires out west in B.C., and the heat waves, we're going to see these costs of major events just escalate over time. And so the insurance industry is actually pushing on, on governments and people to prepare. And there are these kind of financial risk disclosures because of climate change now being kind of uh, forced onto businesses and governments because it is literally a liability to not be prepared. And so I, I think uh, governments are taking this much more seriously. Uh, the federal government is working on a national adaptation strategy that I've been consulted on and our team and other people working in this area. And so we're going to see this kind of shift uh, that I think is very exciting in terms of, you know, this preparedness. And it, it, the, the trick really is, is that Adaptation is kind of like a dog chasing its own tail. If we don't address climate change at source, if we don't rein in our greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to have to pay more and more and more to kind of adapt more and more and more because the issue will just kind of continue to escalate. So it's really a paired process where we need to think about emissions and yep. think about preparedness at the same time. But guess what? Canada Canada is one little slice in an entire world. So uh, we can, if we go down the show, we can preach all we want, we can do all we want here it makes squat difference with the rest of the world unless the rest of the world is on board and it doesn't seem likely that the rest of the world is entirely on board. Well, this is one of those kind of ethical questions, right? And how do you how do you get kind of collective action? And, and you know, I think every country in the world is going to face that question. But you look at what happened in Europe just like this week. They put forward some of the most ambitious climate policy in the world with a very aggressive timeline. And, you know, this is what it looks like. People are going to step out and they're going to say, we're going to be bold. We're going to take action. And I think the, the, the real kind of opportunity there is that you give society a pathway forward that looks possible, hopeful. I've got young kids, many of your listeners do. You know, if we don't try to, you know, ensure that we can survive, literally, it's an existential threat that we're talking about. We have to give people the optimism and the pathway to a better future. And we can't be laggards on this. We can't just go, ah, other people aren't doing it because that is literally a recipe for disaster. And so you're starting to see countries around the world come out super ambitious on this because it's actually going to make their economies and make their well-being as a society better in the long run. And so I think we're in that shift now, and I'm pretty excited about it. Ian Morrill, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Take care. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid.
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.